Psalm 57. This is a, a psalm that is very dark because the psalmist is being persecuted. He feels left out, and yet as Gil prayed in that prayer, his desire still was that God would be glorified and that he would praise him no matter what his circumstances. I'm just going to read two of the verses in here, uh, verse 4 and 5. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Father, bless your word as I preach it. Uh, may it minister in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mahatma Gandhi was a, an Indian mystic who greatly admired Jesus, according to his own words. He wished that Christians would implement more of uh, Christ's words. They, he said, Christians are hypocrites. They don't follow even the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he thought that he embraced many of Christ's ideals. In fact, he was willing to see Jesus as high as Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Zoroaster, and other uh, leaders of religion. So people thought, wow, what an open-minded guy. Uh, but what he could not tolerate, no open-mindedness here, was Christ's words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That is so exclusive. That is so politically incorrect. <laughs> it, it rules out every other religion. In the words of Peter in Acts 4, verse 12, I said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So all the world is called to bow before Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, and they're all called to give glory to God through Jesus. Now, Gandhi could not do that. And so he very emphatically said this, I cannot accord to Christ a solitary throne, for I believe God has been incarnated again and again. So Gandhi was willing to have Jesus on a throne alongside of other thrones and other authorities, but he was not willing to grant Jesus a solitary throne. In other words, that he alone is Lord, he alone is Savior, he alone is mediator between God and man. Now this psalm considers that kind of pluralism to be absolute blasphemy. It does not honor Gandhi, Gandhi at all. It uh, says that he is in rebellion. David's heart passion is given in verse 5 where he says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Now, two weeks ago, we made that verse our testimony when we sang the song, Above All Powers. And our testimony was that Jesus must be above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, all were yours before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. And our heart desires that, doesn't it? Uh, we, we have our hearts well up in praise when we sing that, but the reality is that our life does not always match up with our testimony. We wish it would, but when Christ shines the spotlight of his convictions in our heart, many times we close the door on him, which is doing what? It's demoting him from his throne. 
when we read the scripture and we reinterpret it and say, well, that can't mean that. That would make me too uncomfortable. We are really demoting God from being above all powers. Uh, even Peter, the apostle, spoke back to God on one occasion. Uh, remember the vision that he had of this sheet filled with unclean animals coming down from heaven. And uh, God's voice says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And what is Peter's response? His response is, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, he probably thought he had grounds to say that, but he's putting his opinion above Jesus rather than Jesus above his opinion. And he received a well-deserved rebuke. Now, if Christ were truly Lord in his life at that moment, he would not have said, not so. Or as some translate it, surely not. Surely not and Lord don't go together. They are opposites, right? And uh, yet, many times we have that attitude, surely not, when we come before the Lord. And as you come to the Lord's table this morning, I would really encourage you to say, Lord, your will be done. I want you to be exalted in my life. I want my life to be sold out in service to you. I have Facebook friends who just this past week have said, in effect, surely not to numerous scriptures. As feminized as the Adam and Eve declaration is, there was one statement that offended even one of the friends there that was a feminist. The statement said, we affirm that faithful husbands are the covenant heads of Christian households. And there was kind of an outcry from uh, some in the group. And one of the authors said, well, don't be offended. Head just means source. It, that's a feminist interpretation. Just means source. It doesn't mean that the husband has any authority whatsoever. But she was not going to be satisfied. Unless you take that phrase. And they said, but it came straight from Scripture. And she said, surely not or I'm out of here. She didn't actually say surely not. It had a little bit coarser words. But someone posted Hebrews 13:17 as proving that elders do have some authority in the church. It reads this, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now he just pointed the words, Obey and those who rule over you with zero commentary. And he was instantly demonized as a uh, patriarch and addicted to power and they proceeded to interpret that verse to say the exact opposite of what it says really on the surface of it now strangely what they were triggered by was not any interpretation of scripture it was the scripture itself that's all he did is quote the scripture others are more subtle they use sophisticated hermeneutics to keep certain laws in Old Testament times they don't affect us right now they're no longer relevant in our lives. Uh, we have the feminist hermeneutic that keeps certain passages. No, that just was in the New Testament. That's not for now. We have LGBT, have their own hermeneutic. We've got the Marxists, you know, who uh, stop people's ears to the passages that say that the government is stealing. It is theft when they take money and they redistribute it and all of their socialistic programs. And there's a lot of those scriptures. Uh, you've got these um, psychological movements uh, to scripture that soften Christ's call to crucifixion and they make it instead an easy bed of self-fulfillment. See, every one of those movements is elevating a hermeneutics above God's word, above Jesus, above God, while pretending to honor God and honor Jesus and honor the Sermon on the Mount as Gandhi did. 
Though Spurgeon said this about another verse and another psalm, I think it applies here. He said, God is no petty deity presiding as the heathen imagined their gods to do over some one nation or one department of nature. Jehovah is great in power and dominion. He is to be feared above all gods. And so verse 5 of our passage, what it does is it does two things. First of all, it gives us a theology of God's glory being above everything in this universe. And then secondly, there is this commitment to live for God's glory. Now, how far should God's glory go? Well, it should be more important than heaven is to us. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Our heart's desire, when we look at the sky, and I love the Nebraska blue skies, open skies, you know, birds flying through it, the clouds, I, I, I love it. But it should cause our hearts to well up and say, Lord, you are exalted above the first heaven. When we study science, which deals with astronomy, and uh, we just glory and stand in awe of how amazing all of those stars are, it should make our hearts say, no, Lord, you are greater than those awesome stars. And they are awesome. Even atheists stand in awe at how puny this solar system makes us appear to be. Think about it. We are just a tiny speck. Even our whole church is just a tiny speck on this huge planet. And this planet is pretty puny in our solar system. And our solar system is a tiny speck. In fact, it completely disappears. You go far enough in the Milky Way galaxy, it completely disappears out of sight. And our Milky Way galaxy is so huge. Let me give you a little bit of a feel of how huge it is. The smallest number of stars that astronomers believe is in our Milky Way galaxy is 100 billion. Some say it's upwards of 400 billion, but let's stick with 100 billion. And the smallest number that I have read of how far across our galaxy is, it would take you 100,000 years to cross this galaxy traveling at the speed of light, and yet this vast galaxy is a tiny, tiny prick dot within our universe that to date says that there are a hundred, over a hundred billion, not stars, hundred billion galaxies in this universe. And God is exalted above all of that. So much greater. And he calls us to worship him. Who would not worship a God who is so great and awesome as that? And then when we look forward to getting to our heavenly home, which is called the third heaven, and it's called the third heaven because it's even more exalted, more great than the hundred billion galaxies that are out there. When we are living in heaven, enjoying ourselves there, that's not going to be our chief glory, our chief joy. It's going to be God. And we need to get used to seeing God as exalted above all the heavens, all three heavens. But he goes on and he says, let your glory be above all the earth. The most exalted things in life are nothing compared to God and should not take the place of God. But it is often the trivial, the trivial things of life that occupy our attention and pull our allegiance away from God. It's often the puny things of life that make us compromise. You know, we put the pull of relatives and friends above Jesus. Smartphones, cars, beauty, brains. Some, some of these things make us think we are more important than God. And it really is ridiculous when you think about it. It's ridiculous to put the esteem 
of man, whoever the men are and the women are that we want them to esteem us, to put their esteem above God's esteem, and yet every one of us tends to do that. And so it takes a commitment of our will. What Scripture speaks of is the obedience of faith to appropriate Christ's grace so that we can continually live to His glory, God's glory, just as Jesus continually lives to the Father's glory. Not only does the psalmist here say, be exalted, let your glory, which is the first uh, verb there is in the imperative. It's, it's saying, this is my commitment. It's not only saying that, but in verse 7, he makes a commitment to have a steadfast heart to pursue the Lord in this way. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let's make it our commitment to live to his glory, to exalt him above the heavens and above everything that is in this earth. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning recognizing how paltry our praise is. We recognize, Father, that you deserve more than what we or even angels are able to give to you. And yet, for our own good, you have called us to praise you and to worship you because we ourselves are transformed into the image of Christ as we do so. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray as we come to the Lord's table, we would come with hearts committed to glorifying you. And by your grace, I pray that we would be able to do so. Father, conform us more and more. Give us that transformation that you speak of that takes us from glory to glory, from strength to strength, from grace to grace. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us, Father, to have a passion during this week to glorify your name. To that end, set aside these common elements to a holy use, and may you be glorified in our partaking. In Jesus' name, amen.